you know, you can't measure psychology in a wind tunnel, but it's, uh, it's, it's definitely real. Maybe the size of some people's egos slows them down a bit. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everybody, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation Broadcasting from the uh, the pandemic of <laughs> COVID-19. Uh, the one beautiful thing about podcasting is that you can do it from the comfort of your own basement, and which is where I'm uh, coming from. And uh, Andrew and our guest today, Corey from uh, Cognoscenti Wheel Building, we are all safely self-isolating in our respective homes. Corey, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for coming on. So uh, the the way that I was introduced to Corey was because I needed a, a wheel set built, and he is a, a, a Toronto based wheel builder. And uh, I'd asked around from I'd asked around at a couple of bike shops that I frequent, and I trust their opinions. And uh, it was pretty unanimous that Corey was the guy to go to for uh, for wheel builds. And the one of the folks, and uh, I will not name him or the bike shop he works for, said that the only catch with Corey is that uh, if you're going to go visit him and drop off a set of wheels or pick up a set of wheels, you got to allow a little bit of time because Corey's <laughs> going to tell you <laughs> way more than you ever ever thought you that there was to know about wheels and building wheels. So I can't think of a better person to have on our show to talk about just that. Well, thanks. It's true. I, I've been known to be a little verbose at times on this topic, so uh, guilty as <laughs> guilty as charged. But that's a that's. I mean, I think that's an asset always. But mm -hmm. when you're a guest on a podcast, uh, that's that's even more so. I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if we if we end up getting one word answers here, it may not be the most compelling podcast that we've done. <laughs> Right. So I think the best place to start with uh, with our expert today is talking about braking. This is something that we covered a little bit uh, on a number of shows. If you remember when we had uh, Tri-Rigs Nick Salazar on, he was pretty firmly in the uh, uh, the rim brake camp. And we talked a little bit about brake surfaces then and uh, rim versus disc. And this is a fairly pertinent conversation in both cycling and triathlon these days. And it think that's probably the best place for us to start. So what I'm going to ask Corey to weigh in on was is kind of generally what his thoughts are on rim versus brake and where the industry is heading. And then um, as a follow up, I'll ask him a little bit more about rim specific stuff, because there's there's been some really cool progress there as well. So Corey, what do you think? Uh, rim versus disc? I'm going to we're going to we're going to throw out this one right at you. That's a good question. Um, obviously, the industry has evolved and is evolving, uh, appears toward uh, disc brakes pretty much exclusively. Um, it's been uh, a situation really, I think, that came out of, uh, you know, the pro peloton. Um, what you don't hear discussed is why there's an interest in a move to disc brakes. And um, it's a little uh, a little bit of an, a detailed uh answer, but it's worth knowing. And uh, it starts with the fact that uh, most carbon fiber uh, rim manufacturers have not been able to really find a resin with a higher melting point. And believe me, they have tried. So they, in the last decade, 
almost every manufacturer of carbon rims has really made an effort to get a higher melting point so that when you're descending down an alpine pass at, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 kilometers an hour uh, and braking, that you're not going to heat up your rims and cause delamination and catastrophic failure. So that's been in the minds of uh, both the UCI and different, you know, bodies who are fearful of, you know, someone dying going down a mountain pass. So um, um, even though the industry has made a concerted effort to find resins with higher melting temperatures, they really haven't been successful at that. So what it's done quietly in the background has moved the discussion over to uh, disc brakes. So that would be really what's happening in the pro peloton, uh, you know, right now is, is this move toward disc brakes because of um, just that one issue of not being able to absolutely assure that, you know, racers descending at super high speeds are safe on carbon rims with rim brakes. So that's that's where really that all that conversation began and, and the interest toward moving to disc brakes. It really wasn't a matter of uh, improved braking, believe it or not. It was really all about the melting temperatures of resin and carbon rims. So a lot of people think, oh, it's you know the superior quality of a or modulation of a disc brake that might have moved them toward that. And really, that's not that was not the initial motivation to uh, start looking at disc brakes. So. Um, you know, they're becoming somewhat ubiquitous in all forms of cycling, um, and uh, but the rim brake hasn't died. And, uh, you know, I, th I, st I think the rim brake is still a viable method of braking, and uh, certainly for people who are in the world of triathlons and, and time trial riders, you're not doing that much braking, really. So uh, it's not like uh, those guys are generally descending alpine passes, so they don't really have to concern themselves with you know, the melting temperature of the resin in their carbon rims. They're, they're, that's not something that they really ever need to think about on race day. Uh, so as long as the, as the rim in question has got, you know, uh, some consideration in the design for uh, the, uh, the brake track surface, like Envy has a more stippled uh, brake track surface now, and a few other companies have, you know, moved to make a, a stronger, longer-lasting uh, brake surface. As long as that's been taken into consideration, uh, I don't see any real problems with uh, with using rim brakes. You could go either way, uh, but it's certainly the, the, in the within the industry, uh, the entire industry across the board, the the uh, entrance of the of the disc brake is uh, is real and is certainly taking over. Uh, I don't know you know, who will be making uh, rim brakes in the future and how many companies will still be, uh, you know, wedded to that idea. It's a good question to see in the next couple of seasons, but uh, certainly the disc brake is, is taking over. Um, I, I myself am a recent convert to disc brakes. In the last sort of year and a half, two years, my gravel bike has uh, disc brakes and um, I got used to them immediately and found the quality of the braking quite good, different than a rim brake, certainly. Um, in all cases, I wouldn't say it's absolutely superior, but in most cases, I would say it's a, it's a definite, uh, technological advancement, uh, especially with hydraulic disc brakes. Uh, the modulation is quite nice and, um, yeah, I do, uh, I do enjoy it, uh, but you know, I was a roadie with rim brakes for decades and decades and decades. So it was definitely a big move for me to leave behind the traditional rim brake and go to disc brakes, but I like what I what I'm experiencing thus far. And um, 
I couldn't see myself going back to a rim brake at this point in time. And maybe just because the industry is putting so much uh, concentration on them, that might be it as well. But um, that's sort of where we are. That's a that's a great intro. I think you covered a lot of points. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you as let's say that you have a triathlete who's coming to you who is fairly green or maybe hasn't really dug deep into this into the technology, and they ask for a recommendation. Let's say they are starting from scratch. They're gonna buy a bike and they're gonna buy. Well, obviously that bike will either be rim brake or disc brake. Mm-hmm. And uh, in triathlon time trial these days, there's lots of options for both. Um, as you say, the, the whole industry, including triathlon time trial, is moving a little bit towards disc. How would you advise this individual? Well, the only limitation of getting a bike with rim brakes would be the fact that the industry is putting all their R&D research and development money into uh, disc brakes. So it seems like they're you know realizing that Rim brakes are kind of uh, getting uh, uh, put in the rearview mirror, shall we say. And so I don't think there's going to be, uh, not that there needs to be. I mean, uh, we, we've pretty much mastered the design of a good rim brake. Uh, any high quality rim brake is, is, is well designed, as well designed as it needs to be to do the job. Uh, so, but there won't be any, I don't think there'll be any new R&D money going into rim brakes. So that might be one thing you might consider. Um, uh-huh. Uh, the other thing is uh, when you don't have to concern yourself with the actual brake track on a carbon rim, it frees you up to design the rim in a different way. And uh, it's, it's just something that you don't have to consider. So the one thing from a rim designer standpoint, he's not worried about uh, if he's building, if he's designing a rim for disc brakes, he's not concerned about a braking surface. So that's something that he just eliminates from his design parameters and forgets about and doesn't have to do anything special at that that part of the rim. So it's probably a little bit cheaper to make a, a rim without a, a you know a nice quality uh, brake track, and uh, so that's going to bring the price down a little bit. And it, as I say, it just frees him up. He doesn't have to worry about having a, a distinct surface, you know, a, a basalt surface or several different surfaces they've ex, you know, experimented with, or a stippled surface like that on the Envy rims. Uh, he doesn't have to worry about that. So. Uh, he can concern himself with other aspects of the rim design. So in a way, I would say you might end up with a, a slightly more advanced rim uh, if you were, you know, bought, chose a bike with disc brakes. I would say that would be true. And I think there's other components as well, like looking at the forks. Um, that's actually freed up the fork design quite a bit, where the new Specialized Shiv has a uh, much wider fork design that goes around the, the headset. Um, just because they don't have that requirement for having the the brake caliper there. Mm-hmm. Yes, very true. Yeah, it, it certainly shifts a lot of design parameters subtly, or maybe more than subtly, depending on uh, on what component uh, is involved. But you're right. Certainly, the forks are going to be different. Uh, a, a set of forks that has to sustain, you know, braking forces dip closer to the hub has to be, you know, strong enough to do that because that's there's a lot of uh, force there especially on the you know on the front end of your bike if you're uh, applying a disc brake there's a lot of force there so and that certainly affects um, uh, how the wheel is laced the number of spokes um, these types of things change uh, you know when you get into the world of a disc brake uh, because all the forces are are uh, at the hub you you know you have many different considerations for the hub so it certainly changes how a wheel has to be thought 
design built uh, when you go to a disc brake. It's not the same. You, you definitely have uh, different considerations for the hub. And as I say, even the lacing pattern, even the number of spokes. Um, I was actually quite surprised when the Pro Peloton, when they were discussing going to um, disc brakes, because if you want this you know, whole thing to work well and to be safe, um, you're probably not going to go for those ultra low. Uh, well, you aren't going to go for those ultra low spoke counts because uh, you have too much force um, at the hub for braking with a disc brake. So you kind of move away from all those gains that were made over decades of, you know, going down and down in spoke count and, and making lighter and lighter wheels over the years. That kind of goes out the window when you move to a disc uh, wheel because, uh, you know, it's not advisable to. Uh, have a, a disc wheel with 16 spokes in the front wheel. It's just not a good idea. Makes sense. And I want to talk about spokes a little bit later, but if we can stay on the disc versus rim uh, conversation, I just have one question. And I think you started uh, talking about it when you said that it was a pro peloton driven design consideration because of obviously the much higher descending speeds that those guys will typically yep. see than, you know, your, your average weekend warrior or certainly your triathlete time trialist typically. Uh, so the, my question to you is, do you think that that it was the the pro demand that drove the innovation or drove the industry to go to disc? Or was this just something that the cycling industry saw as a way to do something novel and then, you know, add a couple of skews so that they could then sell more bicycles because then they could say that your old rim brake bike or wheel set or slash wheel set are now obsolete. You have to go disc. What's your kind of what's your gut feel on this? I think it's both. I think it was huh, both. Okay. Yeah, I think it was the bike industry is always looking for new, better, lighter, faster, you know, something to bring out next year's model. And uh, certainly uh, we saw this in the last couple of years, uh, even in Toronto with uh, with uh, top bike shops all of a sudden embracing gravel bikes. And, uh, yes. you know, everybody had to get a gravel bike because that was the cool, <laughs> cool new thing to own. Everybody's getting into gravel. So certainly the cycling industry does that. They're, you know, they're well known for, uh, like any industry, needing new product and demanding new product. And so sometimes these, you know, demands will just create trends that uh, will explode out of that. And certainly I, I think uh, disc brakes and was probably one of those things, like you say, makes your rim brake bike kind of obsolete, old and vintage, which isn't necessarily true at all. But I mean, if you stop seeing, you know, uh, rim brake bikes in bicycle stores and everything on the floor is disc brake and you own a rim brake bike, you're, you're thinking, wow, I'm not exactly uh, up to speed with what's happening in the industry. So I think it's both. I would say it's both. I'd say it's the industry wanting to bring out new ideas, new product to sell you, obviously that, and the, and the realities that I talked about in the pro Peloton about issues of safety and just safer braking on for high speed descents. I think that's, uh, that's both of them would be true. So I find the, the, the point about the interests of safety quite interesting because uh, I remember when they trialed disc brakes, there was a crash and uh, someone's calf was cut up. I can't remember the rider's name, but uh, he right. was accusing disc brakes of being the culprit for it. But it turned out it was someone's chain ring, I think. Um, but there was all this discussion about, oh, are they really safe and we should roll back and go to rim brakes? And um, it seemed like there was all this resistance uh, just to any kind of change in the pro peloton. But I don't know if that was rider driven or if that was coming through the companies or or what the politics were behind that. 
You know, that's a good point. Um, yes, there was that scare. I saw lots of uh, stuff on the net dealing with that scare. And I've always thought, yeah, certainly your chain ring is the most lethal thing on your bicycle. But maybe they were thinking, totally. you know, we have another round, sharp objects. We're adding two more um, to the bike. So that even, you know, uh, increases the number of things that you could get injured. But um, yeah, I don't think there has been that many injuries of that type, you know, certainly there have been people who've gotten cut up from chain rings. That's absolutely a fact. And because of the teeth, they look like, it looks like a saw, right? It looks like a bandsaw. Uh, certainly if you're in a crash and that lands on your head, that's not a good thing. Um, so yes, um, there was lots of talk about that, but I, you know, it's quietened down a lot and I don't think there is, uh, I don't think there is as much fear as was generated from that original discussion about uh, the safety issue of, of, uh, of uh, disc brakes, you know? Great. I want to jump back to uh, braking performance for a little bit. You mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that the real driver was not performance, but was uh, the you know, kind of the fear of delamination at high speed descents, which mm-hmm. makes perfect sense. But what about performance? Because I think that's uh, certainly the way that disc brakes are being built as you know, having an advantage over uh, caliper brakes, uh, rim brakes, especially if they are carbon wheels, there is uh, a performance benefit touted in, in favor of, bra- of disc brakes. So where do you land on a straight up braking performance, assuming you're not dissenting, you know, the Alpe d'Huez? I would say from my own experience, having gone to disc, I would say, and certainly when you're riding in any wet conditions, I think disc brakes will perform better uh, if you have carbon rims uh, than a rim brake. I think Envy has really tried to, uh, you know, create a, a brake surface on their carbon rims that is better. Certainly companies like Swiss Stop and uh, people like that have tried to make uh, brake pad material that works well in wet weather conditions and that um, coupled with better um, braking, uh, you know, designs of uh, brake tracks and rims. So I think it's improved, but, um, I would say that um, uh, even though it's improved, I would still say you're, 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 you have a superiority, especially with a hydraulics setup with disc. I'd say you have a superiority in, in the braking. The modulation with, uh, with uh, uh, hydraulic disc brakes is pretty incredible. So I, I would say it's better. Now, the question I guess I'd ask myself, having done a lot of time trialing in my, in my time, um, how, how important is that to a guy in a triathlon or, you know, or a time trial rider? I don't think it's that important. In other words, I think you, if you're a gravel rider or a mountain bike rider, or other cycling disciplines may be able to take advantage of the, of the superior modulation of a disc brake, but not something I would concern myself with if I was riding a triathlon or a time trial. I, I would say that even though I would side with the disc brake as being a superior braking experience, I would say it's not something that you would need necessarily unless you're riding a time trial or a triathlon in the pouring rain. Uh, when it gets wet, I think this is the wet weather issue is really the conversation. In, in wet weather, yeah, carbon rim is not going to stop as fast with rim brakes as disc. So disc would win out, no questions asked there. But in a dry, on a dry day, um, I would, you know, I could say you could go either way and you, you're, you're going to have your braking is going to be fine on a dry day. You don't, uh, you don't have to worry about it if, it, if the conditions are favorable. Only if they're wet would I really start thinking 
hmm, my carbon, you know, my carbon rims are not going to stop that well in a, on a wet day. Right. So would you make the argument then if someone's, uh, you know, if someone's starting from scratch as the example that I sort mm-hmm. of started earlier, that they may want to consider going disc only because that's the, the new normal. But if they've got a perfectly functional rim brake bike, that there's still a lot of life left in that bike and upgrading is there's, there's not a various, a very strong case to be made for upgrading if you are a triathlete or time trialist. Yeah, I would agree with that. If you already have a really good high quality rim brake bike, I would not be, I would not feel any pressure to upgrade. I would, you know, it certainly if doing those two cycling disciplines, I would not really concern myself with it at all. In fact, you, you have an advantage because you can go to a lighter wheel with, with the rim brake. Um, you can, you know, you can take advantage of all the gains that have been made over the last couple of decades and going down in weight. So you, you would have that advantage of being able to go with a somewhat lighter wheel with the rim brake bike. Uh, and the disc brake bike, you'd really be best to go with more spokes and uh, something that wasn't as fast. It's just not going to be as fast as uh, as the wheels that would that would be accompanying a bike on rim brake. So, but I wouldn't feel compelled to to upgrade I, if I've got something that's good that's working. Uh, I would feel no compunction to go out and spend a whole bunch of money on a, a disc brake bike just to have nicer modulation in the brakes. My only concern would be if I lived maybe in the UK and I was time trialing all the time and it was wet a lot, I might be a little bit more nervous, but even then you're usually by yourself. You're not in a group of riders where you need to stop really quickly or be riding the brakes. You're, you know, you're basically not going to touch the brakes only, you know, a a handful of times or, or not at all during a race. You may not hit the brakes till you can, you know, go over the line. Um, So, I, I would say if you have a you know nice bike with rim brakes, don't worry about upgrading. If it's if it's working for you, uh, you've got something that as an as an athlete at the highest level, you you can still perform as well or even maybe even better than the guy beside you who's got a, a brand new bike with disc, disc disc brakes on them. One of the interesting things here for myself is that my preference is actually a little bit older technology where um, I know carbon's a big thing that everyone's talking about, but actually the aluminum or alloy braking surface, uh, that's, mm-hmm. that's what I prefer to have for my, my TT bike or my triathlon bike. Um, and mainly I realize the wheels that they're not going to be quite as light and not as optimized as a full carbon wheel with, uh, with rim brakes. But um, for triathlons, you're not climbing all that much. You're not accelerating and decelerating. So the extra weight really isn't that much of a killer, but when you do need that braking performance, having the alloy brake track is, I think, a huge benefit there. And it also allows you to swap wheels without having to change brake compounds, which is another concern too. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, there, the alloy rim is not dead. Uh, it's uh, And a lot of people immediately assume that if they go carbon, it's going to be lighter. But in all honesty, I'm weighing rims every day. And uh, and in many cases, carbon rims are actually heavier than the alloy rims. Um, so, uh, yeah, there's often a weight penalty when you go to carbon rather than a, a weight uh, reduction. I mean, there are light carbon rims, don't get me wrong. There's certainly people who've, uh, you know, made a concerted effort to make light carbon and they do exist. But, um you know, it isn't a foregone conclusion that the alloy rim is going to be heavier. And, and there are lots of light alloy rims out there as well and have been over over the years. Um, I, I'll, I'll date myself here uh, by uh, uh, telling a story about building uh, a rim back in, I think it was 1973 or 74. Uh, there's this 
brand new Irgel rim came out, it was 230 or 240 grams, stupidly light alloy rim. Um, Holy smokes. And that was like, yeah, I mean, ridiculously light. I was building from guys who are, you know, top level road riders and guys going to the Olympics and this, that, so very high level events. And um, that was an incredibly light alloy rim. I mean, you have no carbon rim. Maybe there's one I can think of, but almost no carbon rim that comes anywhere near that kind of weight. So uh, alloy is is not a is still a viable you know thing. You can you don't have to go to carbon. I think where carbon becomes uh, advantageous or of interest is the fact that carbon uh, designers can get very specific in the shape of the rim for aerodynamic purposes. You can't quite do that with extruded alloy. Um, the only per, the only company that I know of who made a and this is not a light rim, but this is an interesting rim is a company uh, that was uh, in the Netherlands. A Force is their name, and they have a, a, a rim that tests it incredibly fast in wind tunnels, and it's alloy. It's one of the few alloy ones that's like really fast in wind tunnels, and um, so. But that's rare because you you know making and making and designing an alloy rim is is hard to get the kind of shapes that you can get. With carbon, that's the advantage of carbon is you can you can pretty much adopt any shape that you want, and that's great for people who are really trying to design a fast aero rim. Um, that's the advantage of carbon more than anything else uh, is the fact that you can get all those very specific and unique shapes that are much much harder to attain in any alloy rim. That really comes as a surprise the fact that you can get alloy rims that are that are lighter, and I can. I can imagine, I can stretch my imagination to the point of uh, of that making sense for really shallow rims, but would you be able to make a, a deep, I mean, the aerodynamic advantage of aero wheels is in their depth, right? Because they, they, are, mm-hmm. they become, they're essentially faster at both zero yaw and, it's, and even more faster at non-zero yaw, so where you have a little bit of side wind. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where... I imagine carbon would be preferential to alloys in yes. in the deeper rims because I it makes sense that there are probably some strength and um, and maybe not even strength but toughness would be the the correct engineering term of uh, of the you know of the aluminum alloy material when you're dealing with the brake track and the the on a clincher wheel the uh, the tire beads versus carbon where you need more material to get that kind of mechanical uh, strength and toughness. But in a deeper wheel, I imagine that the, the the lightweight nature of carbon would make it a lighter overall package. Um, but I don't know because I've never really seen a truly aero deep alloy wheel. No, and you don't really see that many. There's very few models that go beyond 32 millimeters in depth, which is not considered in this modern age, a deep rim. So right. yes, usually at that point, uh, a rim designer will, will sort of cut his losses and say, okay, I can make something at this given weight strength ratio at this depth. And the, the rim I mentioned, the A-Force rim is 32 or 33 millimeters deep. Usually beyond that, it moves into the world of carbon because you're right, the material is lighter, the ability to shape it precisely the way you want it shaped uh, all of that exists within the carbon world. So beyond 32 millimeters deep, you, you're moving definitely into carbon and moving away from alloy. There's very few alloy rims that I can even think of that are, there's a few, but they're rare, um, that are going beyond 32 mil because generally they're either made from 6061 T6 alloy or 7075 or some other rare, uh, there are some instances of other uh, alloys that show up that are uh, 
rarer that are not common, but the most common ones are certainly 6061 T6 and 7075. And uh, those alloys have been, certainly 6061 T6 has been used for 45, 50 years. It's got a long, long, long history. The, the rims I was building in the 70s were made of that. And uh, they were fine. They were great. So there's a long history of using that particular alloy. But beyond 32 millimeters, it's not common to see uh, to see people using that material. They definitely would go into the world of carbon at that point. So for our listening cohort who are primarily triathletes and uh, and time trialists, there's probably not too much of a place for uh, a performance alloy rim. I mean, not not a set of training wheels, but let's say a set of uh, racing wheels. Well, if you're married to the idea of deep, you're definitely going to go carbon. If you're go- anything beyond, as I say, around 32 millimeters, you're definitely moving into carbon. Uh, so that is certainly probably for, you know, time trials and triathletes where you're going to net out is a set of right. uh, carbon. Uh, now, you know, I'm sure this could be an inc- incredibly long discussion, but, um, <laughs> you know, the, the benefits of uh, how much, you know, real world benefits exist in, in, uh, in uh, arrow shapes and, and, the, and the type of testing that's done. And I mean, I, I'm not attempting to debunk that. I think there certainly is, there are gains for, for certain, but <clears throat> there's more to it than many people think, because some people will sort of myopically look through this narrow lens of what they might see from a test. And I look at it through another lens, which is, well, you know, how does that wheel build up? Uh, Like often that's never discussed. Like you might have a rim that tests, you know, sort of its its initial design looks very sound from an aerodynamic standpoint and it tests well in the, you know, but it may, is it going to ride as well? Are there going to be other aspects of the build, which may be not superior and maybe inferior and actually slowing you down for a completely different reason, not related to aerodynamics, if you know what I mean. Um, totally. So these, yeah, these are the things that go through my mind as a wheel builder and other wheel builders will say the same thing, meaning sometimes it can look really like a rosy picture where it looks great in the wind in wind tunnel testing, but there are other things that are not being discussed in terms of, of, of the speed of that wheel. Um, Such as what? Like we could, you know, this will sort of segue into like lower spoke counts um, where you may not have a sufficient amount of lateral stiffness um, and you, you know, what you drop in lateral stiffness uh, will actually affect your speed of the wheel. Cause if it's, if it's moving side to side under pressure and not moving forward, then you're actually going slower. So, um, hmm. you know, when I design a wheel, I like to look at it from many different parameters and it's not just what this, you know, rim, rim design might be. It's how is this entire wheel going to build up? Uh, you know, and, and is it going to have, as I say, a lot of times it's issues of lateral stiffness and that could be more uh, an issue with rear wheels and front wheels. Cause traditionally front wheels are obviously not dished, and so they're generally, if they have a sufficient number of spokes in them, are fairly laterally stiff. And especially when you go with deeper carbon, the deeper the carbon that you go, the shorter the spoke is, which makes a wheel very stiff. So generally speaking, deep wheels with deep carbon rims are pretty stiff to begin with. But we have that whole issue of the dishing on a rear wheel. And uh, of course, uh, this all has to be taken into consideration. What what I'm mostly talking about is sometimes there's an error made in going a little bit too low of a spoke count for a given rider's weight. Like a guy who weighs 135 pounds can get away with murder because he's a very light rider. But if you have a guy who's 180 
you might need to really rethink this wheel. In other words, the guy that's 135 pounds, I'm going to build a set of wheels with X number of spokes for him, but I'm not going to build the same set of wheels for a guy who's 185 pounds because it's just not going to, they're not going to be as fast and they're not going to be as laterally stiff. So if I, if I gave him the same set of wheels that I'd build for a guy who's 135 pounds. So for me, there's a bunch of different things that I'm looking at here that, as I say, uh, are, are not just solely related to how things, how well things test in a, in a wind tunnel situation. You're really confirming my suspicion here that uh, wheel building is really a black art. Um, there's so much <laughs> behind it. And I'm so glad that I haven't attempted to do this myself because I would have totally screwed it up. <laughs> I always say your your first thousand wheels are not bad. Then after that, you start getting pretty good. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of wheels to build. So, Andrew, next time you're in Toronto, uh, you should go and visit Corey, and he'll show you some of the tools that he uses to build wheels. And that'll be, I think, that'll be an illuminating experience for you. So it's more than a hammer and a screwdriver. <laughs> yes, if you want them uh, at. Uh, that uh, Tour de France level, yes, definitely more than a hammer and a screwdriver. Uh, I've actually been involved in in working with some tool designers, not to segue into this unnecessarily, but yeah, what Michael said is true. Um, The tools have gotten quite sophisticated in the last sort of 10 years, and I've worked with several tool designers uh, to build just better tools for wheel building. Uh, Our spoke tension meter is one of them a very sophisticated tool that uh, very accurately measures spoke tension. Um, I'm working with a guy in the Netherlands right now, and we're designing a, uh, a pre kind of a pre-stressing tool that is pretty sophisticated. And uh, I won't bore you with uh, all that, you know, noise on tools, but there, there are a lot actually that are there now uh, for wheel builders to use to make, you know, pretty amazing wheels if you know how to use the tools and if you own them. So this is a really good segue, and I know you and I have talked about this uh, when when I came over for a visit, but mm-hmm. uh, to one of our questions that we wanted you to chat about, and it's kind of like, it's a little bit of a softball, because obviously you've got a, a biased opinion here, but uh, I want you to spend a bit of time talking about factory wheels versus hand-built wheels. So for those uh, for listeners, 90% maybe of the wheels you're going to buy are, are factory assembled, so you buy the complete wheel. Right. And what Corey and Cognoscenti offer is... Uh, a fairly different service where you can uh, you can do a lot of customization. And he hinted at some of the customization or some of the things that he takes into account. But uh, let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into that. Well, yeah, I often, I sound like a ranter when I get on the subject of factory built wheels. I'm sure every build, <laughs> wheel builder in the world sounds like it's the sort of typical classic rant. And even on my website on the first page, it's, it, it draws the comparison. Well, you know, why would you get a hand-built wheel versus a factory wheel? What are your concerns if you order a factory-built wheel? Unfortunately, and I really do mean that, unfortunately, there are actually a lot of concerns when you end up with a factory wheel. And um, the situation hasn't really gotten any better in the last decade. Uh, it's not like they're building better factory wheels. There may be a couple of factories, and I really mean one or two, that are turning out stuff. Every once in a blue moon, I will see a factory wheel that's actually not too bad. But um, problem is this. If factories are designed to you know, turn out as many as much product as possible. So you have people who are figuring out how can we get a wheel built as quickly as possible and in a box. I watched a YouTube video where one factory in Taiwan was boasting that their wheel builders can do six wheels in an hour. So that averages 
from the time they start the wheel till it's in a box is 12 minutes. Um, 12 minutes is, is just crazy. I'm taking two and a half to three hours per wheel, and I have been doing it since 1973. Uh, so if it takes me three hours to do a good wheel and someone else is doing a wheel in 12 minutes, you can, <laughs> you can well imagine the difference. Um, and, and sometimes it's actually quite dangerous. I was out on a ride with a guy in our club and we were doing a, a club run and we all uh, as a group bunny hopped a little four or five inch speed bump. And he had a, a brand new front wheel on his bike, just something he bought off of, uh, you know, an online seller. I won't mention the name. And uh, he just, you know, went into the air about five inches, came down on his front wheel, and it completely pretzelized, and he oh, went, over wow. the, went over the handlebars and landed on his head. Now, luckily, he didn't break his neck or die, but, I mean, this was a wheel that was just factory built, obviously way under tensioned, um, and, it, you know, it left the factory like that, and he almost ended up in a wheelchair as a result of it. So it's not even just like is the build substandard. Sometimes the build's even potentially, in, in like that case, dangerous. That was a brand new wheel he just purchased off, a, off of uh, online. So um, the problem, as I say, predominantly is the fact that they, they are churning out these wheels at the speed of light. And if you really want to balance a wheel correctly, it takes a long time to do it right. And um, certainly factories would not be you know, making the kind of money they're making if they were allowing a wheel builder to spend two and a half or three hours per wheel like a, like a pro custom uh, wheel builder would. And uh, so there's a pretty huge difference between a hand-built wheel that's done correctly and most factory wheels. I'm not saying every single last one. Every once in a blue moon, I will come across one that's not too bad. But um, I recently, I'll tell you a quick story. I recently had a client who came to me and who he bought a a set of wheels online. I will not mention the company. Once again, uh, made in China. Now the actual rims there was not an issue with, but the build was so bad. It was so over tensioned. My meter didn't even go as high as these spokes were at. Like they were at an insane, an insane level of tension. Like ready to blow up. Like I wouldn't have even sat on them. And I was even terrified when I was detensioning them because I thought the whole thing was going to literally shatter. I put on like a protective uh, glasses to uh, in case the thing shattered while I was detensioning it. And so that was a factory built wheel. Uh, so you never know what you're going to get. And even the big guys, you know, like we're talking the, the big companies, you, you uh, and as I say, I won't name names, but you know who they are. Um, the biggest of the big are all still done in factories and they have these similar problems. Uh, so the build quality is always at question here. It's not even the question of the quality of the hub or the rim. It's really the build quality. And uh, they do not have, let's put it this way, they do not have master wheel builders on staff spending the amount of time that's necessary to properly, and I, and I should say safely, build you a set of wheels in some cases. Um, so yeah, I, I personally, I wouldn't recommend people buy factory wheels for all of those reasons. And I, they don't have to get them done by me, just any pro wheel builder who knows what he's doing. If you got to get a set of wheels built in your locale and you don't want them shipped from, you know, wherever, um, do that, support your local pro wheel builder and get them done safely and correctly and also get them done for you. Another thing about a factory built is that build is just a generic build. It's not built for you. Your weight, your cycling habits, 
um, your bike, all the things that you know you could design. A, I, someone like me would design a wheel set for you, and it would be just you. It's not designed for anyone else. It's designed for precisely what you intend to do on your bike. And as I say, all of your habits and your weight, everything, your cycling style. I'm going to take all this into consideration and come up with a design that makes sense for you and you only. And uh, if I'm doing it for you, that's my only my only consideration is is all the you know, needs, wants, and desires that you have. And that's going to, that's going to be very tailor-made, quite a bit different than buying anything that would be off the, off the rack. Right. Uh, well, you've put the, you know, the fear of God in all of us now <laughs> riding our factory wheels, which I think is probably the overwhelming majority. I can count on one hand the number of people I ride with that have handmade wheels. Right. So if, uh, if you know, we, we, we are buying factory wheels, I think that's, I think your advice is great. And especially in this time of economic weirdness and uh, uncertainty right. supporting your local business is all is all the more important so you know support support your local shops and and uh, you know mechanics and and wheel builders guys but uh if you are riding a set of factory wheels especially if you just if you just got a new set what are some of the things that you can do to make sure that you don't end up like your like the poor chap that you told us about uh tacoing his wheel and doing an endo well, what I've done for club mates, and I just offer this as a free of charge, so you can't do better than free, is uh, if they bought a set of factory wheels, I just say drop by with your bike or your wheels. Let's throw a, a spoke tension meter on them and let's just see, are they completely way under what they should be? And therefore, we need to address that. I did that just the other day on a, on a brand new set of wheels that a guy bought and they were yep. way under tension. And so we just got them up to snuff where they should be so that they were safe and he went away and everything was fine. Uh, so not a, not a significant charge there. But I mean, I will just, I'll do the assessment for free. So if right. they're, you know, like in the case, the guy who brought them over where they were literally ready to explode, that was an extraordinarily dangerous situation. And by the way, when this guy contacted that company, that company refused to take those wheels back, just absolutely refused. Um, not not a very impressive response to a very dangerous situation. Uh, the the rims were so uh, the, the actual rims were distorting under that tension. He finally talked them into sending him a brand new set of rims, and I rebuilt them completely with the new rims, the replacement rims, and built them to the correct tension. And now he's happy as can be. But um, that company did not want to take the wheels back, and were even reluctant. Like they really had to sort of threaten threaten them with a legal action to get them to even send new rims. So, um, not very impressed. I know it was, and it's bizarre because if something happens to him and he, you know, he has an accident that that is like the worst, you know, even if, even if it doesn't come to legal blows, that is horrible PR. That's like, that's something you do not want. Yeah. This is a a huge company. And I was absolutely gobsmacked at their response. Like he showed me the emails and I was like, I can't believe it. They're almost like trying to like, they just wouldn't accept any of the blame. Nothing. He said, I had a professional wheel builder measure them and that they were well beyond any safe, you know, state and, uh, and, uh, the rims were actually physically distorting and, uh, they didn't want to own any of it. I was like, wow, I can't believe their response. It was really disappointing. And, uh, you know, and, but this is how I end up with customers. Cause he had, he said, I'll never order a set of, you know, factory built wheels again, and I'll only get them custom built. And, and so, uh, I'm sure he's spreading that gospel, but, uh, yeah, it's, it can be, 
can be bad. So, uh, you know, getting back to what I said earlier, I would just have someone, if they got a brand new set of wheels, drop them by, I'll take a look at them and just, I mean, just make sure they're safe. Just make sure that they're, you know, not at some crazy under or over tension situation and that they're safely built. And uh, that's the most important thing is safety off the, off the bat, you know? Sure. Sure. This has really opened my eyes because I was always under the assumption that it was just good enough or built well enough from the factory. But uh, hearing that that's not the case actually terrifies me quite a bit. Well, the guy who had that wheel completely taco was right beside me. He was literally like six inches away from me in a tight little Peloton. So when he went over the bars, I mean, he almost caused me to crash. Luckily, I didn't. Um, But, you know, I looked at the wheel like, right after the accident, we attended to him first, obviously he was in a state of shock. Um, but I looked at it and it was, it was just obviously wildly under tensioned and, uh, and he had no idea. He, he was a guy who just bought it as a replacement wheel online and figured he was fine. He was a okay and goes out on the first ride and ends up on his head. And, uh, who knows, you know, what could have happened? Like it could have gone really bad. Um, luckily, as I say, he didn't break his neck. But um, yeah, it can be it can be even dangerous. And uh, there's, I, as I say, I won't name names, but there are a few products out on the market by huge companies, and I do mean huge companies that are not safe. I, there are some that I actually refuse to work on because uh, they're just not safe. And uh, I can't believe these companies, being as big as they are and having been in the game for over half a century, are putting out product like this. So. Even if you plan to buy a set of factory wheels because you don't have any more money than that, I would still talk to your local wheel builder to have him maybe give you some advice on who to trust and who to maybe avoid because there's stuff out on the market that's just plain dangerous that I wouldn't ride one mile on, let alone own a set. Um, as I say, in some cases, I've, I've just you know refused to work on them because I'm not going to, I can't make them any better than they are and they're just simply not safe. So with all this discussion about uh, spoke tension and having the proper tuning of the wheel, maybe it's time to dive a little bit into spokes and what uh, what to look for or how to how to properly select the spokes that are best for you. Sure. Um, at this juncture, I'm predominantly using Sapim from Belgium. And for many, many, many years before my sort of shift to Sapim, which are a great company, I use DT Swiss and DT Swiss makes excellent spokes. Um, and prior to that, in the 70s, I used a French company called Robergel, which were the best spoke ever made by far. And they went out of business, unfortunately, around 1979. And, uh, you know, that was a sad day because they were absolutely mind-blowingly good. Um, nobody's made a spoke that good since. But having said that, DT Swiss and Sapim are superb. Um, there's certain models of spokes within their range that I don't like. In other words, I don't like everything they make. I, I side with a couple of models that I think are, are absolutely excellent. And there's a few that I, oh, I just don't think they're uh, all that they're cracked up to be. Um, but um, what's happening in the Pro Peloton, a very popular spoke that probably almost 95% of riders are using is the Sapim CX Ray, which is a, a bladed spoke. And it's a, it's a sand made of sandic steel and it's a forged spoke. So each one of those CX Ray spokes gets hit by a 300 ton press. Literally, I've seen a, a thing, a movie on YouTube that shows how they're made. So it's a meticulous one at a time kind of thing. 
but they are uh, insanely strong, uh, very, very light, almost as light as titanium. And certainly for a triathlon rider or a time trial guy, that would be a go-to spoke um, if you want really lightweight, as li- pretty much as light as it gets, and super strong. They're not cheap. They're $4.50 a pop, so they're not an inexpensive spoke, but they are pretty much the best spoke out there for um, <clears throat> anyone who's um, who's th- you know racing. Whether road racing, uh, time trialing, or triathletes, this would be sort of a go-to spoke, a, f- a favorite. And I guess if you're going to be spending five to ten thousand dollars on a bike then maybe a few hundred dollars on spokes that offer that safety and that extra performance are probably worthwhile yeah and here's a, an interesting point that nobody ever thinks about that i often mention <clears throat> they're they're often you know uh, hailed as an arrow spoke because they're bladed so that's not untrue they that they are an arrow spoke but that's not the reason that i love them the reason i love them is the fact that <clears throat> any arrow spoke <clears throat> being flat has a a larger surface area where spokes actually physically cross. And from an engineering standpoint, you guys will appreciate this. This this results in an incredible amount of additional lateral stiffness to the wheel by the fact that that large surface area is so so big that you get a lot of extra additional strength, especially on low spoke count wheels, um, with that big flat area. So on a round spoke, <clears throat> two round spokes that are touching is, you know, is a tiny, tiny, tiny actual physical area. So you're not getting that much, uh, you know, metal to metal because they're round. Um, it's like pinpoint. Whereas, whereas, uh, a bl- any bladed spoke is a very large flat area. It's probably a hundred times the area uh, that's actually physically contacting the adjacent spoke. So that's actually why I like bladed spokes more than their arrow characteristics from a wheel building standpoint is the additional lateral strength that you'll get in a wheel. So I'll often, even someone who's not racing and doesn't need that arrow advantage of a bladed spoke, I will still recommend a bladed spoke to them just for the strength, that strength aspect. That was not something I had expected. That's very interesting for me. Um, and I know that, well, just imagining having that that small point of contact, it's kind of like holding a, a knife blade against the spoke wherever yep. they're crossing. Yeah, yeah. It's not to say that round doubles butted spokes aren't adequately strong enough. They are adequately strong enough. It's just that you want to use every single measure that you possibly can to increase lateral stiffness uh, when you get into lower spoke counts. And I, I call lower spoke counts anything lower than 28. So that may sound very old school, but uh, you know, once you drop down to 24, I would recommend a bladed spoke simply because of that physically larger contact area that's going to increase lateral uh, lateral stiffness. So uh, that's cool. yeah, that's that, that's just quite important. You, I don't know if other wheel builders look look at it through that lens, but the minute I started working with bladed spokes, the first thing that I recognized, like almost day one, was how much additional lateral uh, strength there was in a wheel with lower spokes because they were because of that physical large physical area. Awesome. So keeping uh, keeping the focus on components, I'd like to talk a little bit about hubs. Now, something that people who've never had 
wheels built before and who haven't really dug into the the cost of these things it blew me away when i realized how much quality hubs cost it's it's a it's an exorbitant amount of money i mean yes. exorbitant is a relative is a relative term for me me yeah. being you know uh, self-employed and father too it was exorbitant sure. uh, so, so that's what that's what blew me away so then immediately i started thinking about well what's the kind of the return on my investment in getting a hub that could be you know a pair of hubs that could be a thousand dollars or more versus mm-hmm. something that is you know much much less expensive so i'd love i'd love for you to talk a little bit about that too well the good thing is is that uh we can thank the taiwanese for this is that uh, they have been making better and better and better quality hubs at lower prices. So the the gap between the quality issues between a a set of, say, Chris King hubs at north of $1,000 as opposed to a set of Bitex hubs that are, you know, a fifth that price, um, the the difference is the gap has been narrowed. In other words, really the quality that you're getting out of less expensive hubs these days is pretty impressive. Um, as I say, I use Bitex as the kind of the lower end of the scale. It's probably the least expensive hub that I sell. Um, but what do you get when you spend a thousand dollars? When you spend a thousand dollars, um, for instance, in the case of Chris King, you get a lifetime warranty. So if you made that investment and if that hub shell ever cracked, even 20 years down the road, according to Chris King, they will send you a brand new one no questions asked. So the lifetime warranty thing, it's like, why do you buy Envy rims? They now have a lifetime warranty. So that's for a lot of people. They like that thinking, well, I've made this enormous investment. You know, are there some pluses here beyond just, you know, uh, the design and, 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 and construction of the hub. And one of those things in a couple of cases are lifetime warranties. Um, there's not a lot of companies that are offering lifetime warranties, but I'm seeing more and more of it it's starting to crop up in the area of rims. We'll talk about that in a bit. But on the subject of hubs, um, basically what you're looking at is overall construction. And most hubs these days, oh, pretty much everything, is, is CNC machined. So even the cheaper, as I say, Bitex hub is still CNC machined like the $1,100 Chris King set. So they're both made at a pretty high tolerance level as I say, even across those two price points, huge, huge gap. Um, I would say with um, the best hubs, you're probably getting more R&D in the hub. So the design sometimes is superior. Uh, you're often getting the option of, say, things like hybrid ceramic bearings. So if you want your go fast bearings, which we can talk about in a minute. Yes, please. Um, you, know, you know, ceramic bearings are an option. Uh, very expensive, uh, high-quality ceramic bearings in, in better-quality hubs. But even that's being, as quick as I say that, you know, even Bitex now is offering you the option if you want to upgrade to ceramic bearings. So even if you don't have a ton of cash to spend and you kind of want to get a set of custom-built wheels, but you don't have $1,100 for a pair of hubs, you can now, even on lower-quality hubs, now have the option of upgrading to ceramic bearings. So... Um, the, the best hubs generally, you know, uh, have probably the most thought put into the designs. I'll give you an example of a hub that wouldn't necessarily be a first choice for a time trial guy, but um, a company like Onyx in the United States, they've got some really forward thinking designs. Like they have a, a Sprague clutch in the free hub mechanism 
that has really no resistance when you're freewheeling because it completely disengages. So uh, huh. it's probably tests as the fastest hub in the world. They put really high quality Veronat German uh, uh, ceramic bearings in them, and they have this really interesting Sprague clutch. As I say, when tested, offers the lowest rolling resistance of any hub made on planet Earth. So they are the fastest hub out there. So, you know, you, on these more expensive products, sometimes you'll have really great and interesting and innovative design platforms that other people are just, you know, not going, they're just doing something conventional. They're not going into the world of, of really uniquely designed products. And Onyx are expensive. They're probably more expensive or as expensive as Chris King's. They're around that price range, around, a thousand, you know, approximately $1,000 Canadian for a set of hubs. So they're hardly cheap, but they, you know, they do have some, um, unique design aspects to them that uh, sort of, you know, raise them, you know, head and shoulders above the competition. Um, so when you talk about this innovative clutch, and that sounds like a, you know, a really interesting engineering solution, uh, I just want to be, I just want to be clear that that really, the fact that it's zero drag or nearly zero drag, that's important if you are coasting, if you're not actually, if the, if the clutch is not engaged, but if it's engaged, correct. then, then it's, you know, and in a time trial triathlon where it's all steady state, always turning the pedals, always right. applying power, it's that is that becomes a non-issue or at least a very insignificant issue, right? Exactly. I would completely agree. Um, you know, 99% of the time in your time trial, or your triathlon, you're, you're boogieing, you're pedaling, you're not uh, coasting. I mean, if you went into a long descent or a corner sure. or something like that, you might, I mean, but in races that could be lost or won by half a second, you know, sometimes you see like literally someone beat you by half a second. You start asking yourself, hmm, I wonder if I, <laughs> in that section where I was not pedaling and, uh, and, uh, and I was going down that long descent and I was just, you know, cornering and, uh, and how much drag was, how much, you know, you start asking yourself crazy questions, really. All athletes at that level want the highest level of performance and they're thinking, well, and, and you get into a world of limited gains, you know, as you go up in money and sometimes these, you know, but it might be the difference between a half a second winning or losing a race. So for some guys, as you well know, they will spend any money to know at least if, and sometimes it's only a placebo effect that they're on the fastest wheels that they possibly can be on and that there's sure. nobody who's got faster wheels. And so that might even have a great placebo effect on race day because they they know that their wheels are not holding them back. They absolutely are on as fast as it, as they can possibly be. And, uh, you know, this is, you know, like we could, we'll segue at some point into the question of why people go with ceramic bearings. Um, are they worth it on bicycle wheels? You know, it's, yeah, it's, that's, it's, that's the next question. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can, we can do that. I mean, I would say, yes, I used to say no. And I'll tell you why I've changed my opinion. I, I, I finally, I, I'm on a set of Onyx hubs that have these nice expensive German ceramic bearings in them. And I can tell you that every time I'm, I do a lot of group rides, I'm out every day riding and I'm out riding with a club several times a week. Every time we are descending on a hill, guess who is at the bottom of the hill first? And I'm not the heaviest guy in the Peloton. It's me yeah. always. And I laugh all the way down. Cause I'm like, is it possible? Is it really possible that these bearings are so fast that I, I literally leave everybody in the dust as we're all coasting down these hills nobody's pedaling and I'm turning around and I cannot believe that virtually every time I'm at the bottom of the hill and I can't put it down to anything other than it's got to be these bearings because 
It didn't used to be the case on other wheels that I've ridden. And I'm not even on a light set of wheels. I'm on a gravel bike. And in many cases, other guys are on their road bikes with way lighter wheels. So, you know, the performance level of their wheels well, if is... You're going, if you're going down the hill, then you, you don't want light. You want heavy. Yeah, exactly. exactly. But, I mean, it's just fascinating to me that, that, that if I'm behind them, I'm braking constantly and they're not braking. And it's just like, wow. It's, it's, it's amazing, but you know, I've read everything that that's, and it's true. You know, many people will say there's no real advantage for ceramic because a bicycle hub is just not spinning quickly enough to take advantage of the high tolerances of a, of a, of an expensive ceramic bearing. And I've read all the naysayers will say, you know, this is not really advantageous because you're just not going fast enough. In other words, if your bicycle was going 300 miles an hour, it would really start to you know, matter what bearings were in your, uh, were in your hubs. But, um, you know, you, you see all the guys in, in the pro Peloton, they're all riding ceramic speed and they're changing over their right. bearings to ceramic. And I would say this, I, I think there's got to be more to it. Um, and as I say, it just, my own personal experience seems to indicate that these hubs are bloody fast. I've never been on anything that just sort of rolled like this before. And there is also, and I, I never negate or minimize this, if an athlete thinks he's going to go faster, the, the placebo effect. It, it's, it's real. It's real. It's real. So yeah. if you think you're going slower on these steel bearings while you're going up a hill and that starts to just invade your head and, and you can't think about anything but the guy in front of you, you know him, he's riding ceramic speed today and he's in front of you and you're starting to make all the excuses of why he's up front. There's this whole this whole thing that goes on in your head. I know from doing years and years of time trialing myself that if you got on super light wheels and you know and everything was dialed and tweaked and you know you're on the lightest best tires, there was a huge huge thing in your head that was positive that you know you thought okay I'm going to go fast today. And so I, I don't underestimate the the potency of having gear that makes you think you're going to go fast in the real world maybe measurably you're not going to go faster but if you believe you are that's a, a plus that i wouldn't want to take away from anybody does that make sense total sense we actually andrew and i we we just wrapped up a series or uh, we might do one more episode of uh, of our advice for going faster on the bike and then when we were evaluating products we talked about their obvious technological advantages aerodynamic lower drag but uh, we also, you know, mentioned the fact that there are some things that that make you feel faster, and that does absolutely have a real world advantage. It's obviously much harder to measure because, yep. you know, you can't measure psychology in a wind tunnel, but it's uh, it's it's definitely real. Maybe the size of some people's egos slows them down a bit. It might, it might, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Andrew, that's that's going to be that we have to develop a test for ego drag. Yeah, ego drag. I like that. Yeah. No, but it's true though. You know, I, I, I get into the, these conversations all the time with athletes and I understand where they're coming from having raced for many years myself. You don't want to set up a dynamic where you're on something that you're convinced is slower, like slower tires, whatever, you know, so whatever it is on your bike. And in many cases, it often relates to wheel discussions. But uh, so, you know, I have athletes who are right on the cutting edge of, you know, what the latest thing that they can possibly ride that's not going to discombobulate on race day because that's the last thing you don't want to have a mechanical sure. uh, on race day and have a problem because you've decided to go to a, a, a rim that's just too light for your weight and you know something negative happens but um 
you know, but guys are generally pushing that envelope, you know, as, as, you know, as much as they can. And they're, you know, they're asked a million weight weenie, you know, questions. And, uh, and I have to answer these, you know, these million weight weenie questions. And, uh, but I do understand it, you know, they're, they're trying to, they're trying to, you know, set up a situation that they're on the fastest thing that they can, they can be riding that's made. And I, I totally get it. You know, I, when I raced, I wanted the same kind of thing. I, I did not want to think that the guy beside me somehow had an advantage because he had, you know, silk tires and I had cotton tires, you know, and there was only 20, 20 grams difference in weight, but somehow that was going to affect the outcome of the day. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. Um, the the last question that we have for you, Corey, is before we kind of sign off, is uh, we kind of want you to do a little bit of speculation on where the wheel industry is headed. Like, what's next? Obviously, disc brakes, we, as we talked about in the beginning, mm-hmm. they're they've kind of hit mass adoption. I think in in high performance road and gravel and even time trial triathlon cycling. Yep. What do you see as being kind of the next the next thing? Where are we going? Well, what's exciting to me, a recent development, and uh, it's coming out of Taiwan, and I'll have to give a little shout out to Victor Major from Venn, V-E-N-N. What's happened there, uh, Victor's a very bright guy who's, you know, deep into all of these things about bicycle wheels. That's what he sells, the Venn rims and Venn wheels. Um, He has brought about the first rim designed by AI, uh, artificial intelligence. Cool. And- Yes, very cool. And what's interesting about this, it was extraordinarily successful event. He wanted to, you know, uh, work with a very deep arrow rim. 77 millimeters was the depth of the rim. Okay. And he basically wanted to uh, have the, you know, computer crunch all of these wheel designs. And I think through our email exchanges, I think that it was something like 600 and plus, 650 possible designs to make the fastest um rim out there and uh this whole effort was completely successful when independently tested this was as basically as fast as it gets so um ai design showing up in in bicycle rims fascinating stuff and not just uh, not just talk this this was a su- totally successful uh, venture that had measurable um you know advantages in, in wind tunnel testing so um there's, you know, the introduction of things like that is really a game changer. Um, uh, that's, that's as, to my knowledge and to knowledge of Victor, nobody else has done this. Nobody else has uh, uh, created a, an AI design rim that, that tested so fast in the wind tunnel. So there's things like that happening that are uh, totally unique first time uh, efforts that are really, really exciting. I'd like to really, um, uh, I've been meaning to actually build up a set of these because I would like to get a some guy who's really fast on a set of these and see what he thinks. Um, you know, uh, uh, as I say, the wind tunnel, they, they were super impressive, um, uh, but I'd love to get uh, someone on them that I know or, you know, someone that I would meet that uh, is a fast time trialist or triathlete and um, put them on a set of these Venn uh, 77 mil deep uh, rims because I think, I think this is a, we're entering a, a game changer situation. And another thing about uh, Venn, which is quite interesting, is uh, they came out of the gate with a, a really unique way of making carbon fiber rims. Instead of using a traditional hand carbon layup, like basically 99% of the rim manufacturers use around the world, they're using a, um, a filament spun methodology. So they're using stranded carbon. 
spun with a machine very accurately instead of having a human being doing you know individual sheets of carbon that are cut out and laid into a mold um, that en ends up in a mold. So this is a machine-made rim that affords greater accuracy, uh, less uh, waste of resin, um, a more even resin throughout the rim, and uh, apparently renders a stronger, uh, more accurately built rim. So not only have we got this uh, company doing uh, interesting things with AI-designed rims, they're also their methodology for actually producing their carbon rims is completely unique. There's only two other companies in the world that are experimenting with that. One is FSE, that's based in the United States, and another one is a guy I, email, I get emails from uh, Speeder Cycling in China. They've been wanting to send me some rims to test out. They're also making a full filament spun rim as well. So there's a couple of companies who are have embraced this filament spun technology, but uh, Venn was one of the first ones out of the gate. I don't know if the first was Venn or FSE. They might have come out around the same year, a couple of years ago. But um, yeah, some interesting things along those lines. I think that filament spun technology when it's completely perfected, if it's not protect, perfected at this point in time, will certainly uh, be adopted by most other rim manufacturers in the world. I think they're going to be lining up to license this technology because uh, it's way, way, way faster to make a rim and it has the potential to be way more accurate. So you can have faster, better, and cheaper because they can sell them cheaper because they can make them in a third of the time or less. So interesting stuff like that is happening. Quite excited about that. That's super exciting. And Corey, I know you can't see me, but my arm is up in the air for uh, for getting on a, a set of those Venn rims. If you need somebody <laughs> local, I can't promise you fast because you know. Okay. I mean, look, I'm, I'm in the triathlon world, sure. faster than average. Sure. But we can we can do some interesting testing too because uh, we the guys we had on the show last week. Uh, actually, no, we I haven't published the show yet. We recorded last week, but uh, they're going to mm -hmm. probably come out next week. Uh, they're these guys from. Uh, Argon spin-off Nochio, and they do okay. a um, an aerodynamic sensor. Anyway, we the, the episode's up. It will be up there by the time this airs. But uh, yeah, we can do we can do some interesting testing of uh, of those Venn hoops compared to something else, perhaps. Yeah, they sound really. I exchanged a lot of emails with Victor as he was working through that project, and um, you know he was just giving me little updates here and there, and, and when it was done, and. Uh, it sounded just absolutely fascinating, and it is. It's just uh, amazing that you could uh, that you could have an AI designed rim that was a winner. You know, it it was like I think the fastest in that depth, fastest rim out there. So cool. Yeah, I want. I definitely want to get. We should we should talk about that because I would definitely want to get a a rider on on these uh, seventy seven mil Vens and uh, see. You know, I want to see how they build up. First of all, that's the, you know that's sort of a separate and distinct thing. For me, just to see what I what I what I think when they build up, I'm sure they're going to be great. But um, there's that aspect of it, and certainly the, the proof will be in the pudding. I want to I want to get the feedback from a rider. How do these feel? You know, uh, it it's really boils down to that. You know, uh, do, do do people feel these are faster? Do they feel that they're a definite uh, serious upgrade that you know would be of interest to people? Because I think they would be, but I, I, I want to hold my judgment until I get a cyclist on them, racing with them and, you know, and talking to him after riding a couple of events with these things to see what, you know, that rider thinks. For me, this whole discussion has been 
in in some ways a little ironic. Uh, we've talked about taking manufacturing from an automated process and turning it back into a manual process for higher quality, and then taking <laughs> a design process, which is typically very manual, and turning it into an automated process. So yes. it's, it's just flipped my whole conception of the the wheel industry on its head. Yeah, it it is. It is. There are some fascinating. There's some very smart people out there who. Uh, who are, you know, are really innovative thinkers. And uh, I wish some of them just had more money. They, they don't have the money of a Mavic, a Shimano, or a Campagnolo behind them. They're very small uh, factories. And, uh, but, you know, these guys are very bright and they do a lot of work uh, and uh, they've got some great ideas. Right. Gentlemen, uh, one of my new realities, I'm going to totally switch gears right now uh, with this uh, new coronavirus situation, is that now my boys are at home all the time, and now I'm being told okay. that it's nap time, with which I have to help. So this <laughs> this becomes a place where, <laughs> where, where unfortunately, we have to wrap. Um, I'm going to say a huge thanks to Corey. I always I always do enjoy talking with you, and I always take something take something away from it. And I know that our listeners will, too. I mean, how many people have thought more than once about the uh, the build quality of their factory wheels or the fact that you know the the mm. the number of spokes in their wheels may not be optimally suited to their riding style or their you know their, just their physical physical mass so this is uh this has been a great chat Corey. thank you thank you for inviting me i love talking about this um and you know there's so many other things that we could chat about so if you guys uh want to do another one in the future i'd be more than happy to join you uh it was great i really appreciate you asking me to uh to weigh in on these on these topics and uh I think we only scratched the surface here. There's Agreed. so much more to talk about. And I think, Michael, you and I both consider ourselves fairly technical people. And this was just eye-opening for me. Yes. Because it's one of those things that it, there are so many elements in in our sport, guys, that that we don't think so much about. I think we get we get super detailed and super deep in very very specific elements, and then we completely ignore others. Right. You know, like wheel wheel decisions, like like hubs and spokes and things. Nobody thinks about that, or maybe one percent of one percent of people think about what's the best spoke for my wheel set because I buy a wheel set and there's a spoke in it, and that's all. You know, right. I don't think about it. I think about weight and I think about depth and then maybe I think about disc versus rim but I don't think about all of these details that maybe I should be thinking about that that potentially make a huge impact yeah they do in a sentence yes they all do make potentially a huge impact yeah I was gonna say so uh just so that we can start getting a lineup out your door for people with uh with big name wheels who want them uh, tension checked Corey how do people get in touch with you uh you know what best thing to do is uh, all my contact information is on my website which is cognoscenti slash cycles.com um okay and uh, they can uh you know email me they can call me uh whatever uh is easiest um and certainly, yeah, just reach out to me. That's perfect. I'll I'll put that up on our show notes. Yeah, just reach out to me. Happy to help them out if they have any questions about, you know, which way to go. As I say, even if they're in the end going to buy factory wheels, they might just want, um, you know, some information on, on which way, which companies are just better than other companies. Then I can name names <laughs> and get specific yeah, about uh, without getting, uh, you know, sued. Uh, no, I, you know, <laughs> that, that, that will help people because there are some stuff to gravitate to and there's other stuff to stay away from. And I could certainly at least steer them in the, in the right direction of, of, you know, where to spend their money. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you again for your time. Yeah.
Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. Have a great day and keep uh, safe uh, in this COVID world. Yes, yes. And uh, to all of our listeners, uh, thank you very much for sticking with us, for listening. Hopefully, as you're doing your many miles indoors now, with some countries completely banning outdoor cycling, and for our European friends, for instance, uh, and hopefully won't come to that in, uh, in Toronto or in the rest of Canada. But uh, if you are indoors and you need something to listen to, this podcast, I would say, is a good way to go. And if you do enjoy it, tell your friends, rate us, and uh, write reviews for us uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys.